Regards, and welcome to Ryan Rambles You to Rest, the sleep podcast where I drone on and on about topics of nearly no importance and drive you off to a state of stillness with my sedative voice and my dubious worldly knowledge. In this episode, I thought it would be nice to get back on the Roundup horse. It was a series of embarrassing mischaracterizations which bucked us from the horse in the first place. But now my wounds, and hopefully yours as well, have healed mostly, and our calluses now gird us for the gauntlet ahead. If you are also a foodie, then this episode is for you. In addition to the roundup, Our update segment is an expanded edition chock-full of follow-ups to some of our culinary queries from our last visit. Before we begin, I recommend that you subscribe to this show on your podcast platform of choice or YouTube. For news and announcements, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RyanRamblesPod. You can also find me on Twitter at Anvil1. Our soundtrack is by Disparition. And now some updates for listeners of this and previous episodes. Among the more interesting revelations of our exploration of the vegetables I know is the discovery that our starchy stalwart, the potato, which was domesticated over 7,000 years ago, only found its way into familiar European cuisine relatively recently, in the 16th century. I decided to follow up with some information about famous potato-based European dishes. Specifically, I mentioned French fries, corned beef hash, and shepherd's pie. I decided to look into their history. Of those listed, my personal favorite, the shepherd's pie, made traditionally with ground lamb, is a descendant of the cottage pie made with beef. According to Wikipedia, the earliest references to either are only 50 years apart with the latter cottage pie dating back to 1791. So, in the scheme of things, a new invention in the potato pantheon. There is also mention that there is another dish called Hatchis Parmentier, which is another 50 or so years older than shepherd's pie, that appears in both English and French cuisine. The word hatches is where the English word hash comes from. Hash, more or less, means chopped meat, potatoes, and onions, like shepherd's pie and cottage pie. The premise in all cases is more or less to use up leftovers. Corned beef hash is a relatively modern invention, 
This from wikipedia.org. Hash is a culinary dish consisting of chopped meat, potatoes, and fried onions. The name is derived from French, hatcher, meaning to chop. It originated as a way to use up leftovers. In the USA, by the 1860s, a cheap restaurant was called a hash house or hashery. Canned corned beef hash became especially popular in countries such as Britain, France, and the United States during and after the Second World War as rationing limited the availability of fresh meat. I think this is super interesting because I honestly had no idea that corned beef hash, which has a place in my heart, in particular the canned variety, was actually popularized by the arguably substandard version from the can. In some ways, it makes me feel vindicated when the canned variety is what I'm actually craving, and that when I see it on the shelf at the grocery store, I sometimes consider buying it. Although I really never do. Despite this popularity of the canned version, here is more from Wikipedia. Classic American corned beef hash originated in the New England region of the United States as a way to use up the leftovers from a traditional boiled dinner of beef, cabbage, potatoes, and onions. A red fennel hash is made with beets instead of potatoes. Fish hash, including salt cod hash, has been observed in historical New England cuisine. Corned beef and cabbage dinners is an Irish-American tradition from the 1800s that is now commonly observed across the United States on St. Patrick's Day. Corned beef hash is also commonly served on St. Patrick's Day, as well as around American Thanksgiving and Christmas. So, corned beef hash and corned beef and cabbage have their roots in the United States from Irish Americans. I had always assumed that corned beef hash was European, if not purely Irish. That said, hatch itself is the only food in this part of our exploration which predates the potato's arrival in Europe. More from Wikipedia. As early as the 14th century, English people were making hash or hashy. According to cookbook author Stephen Reichlin, quote, the English diarist Samuel Pepys waxed grandiloquent about a rabbit hash he savored in 1662. I'm not completely skeptical about this research but there is a good stretch of time between the end of the 14th century and 1662. I looked up this citation, and the same claim is made by the article writer without substantiation. At the very least, it is no stretch of the imagination that chopped meat and veggies 
were popular before the potato hopped a boat across the pond. All of this is very fascinating, and if you would like to learn more about the origins of hash, there will be a link to the article in the description. It has a brief but detailed section about hashes from multiple other European countries that I fear would take us far too long to pour over in this context, as we are not through with our potato business. At the top of the updates, I listed shepherd's pie, corned beef hash, and french fries. But before we finish off the trifecta, I wanted to pass over a handful of excerpts about Antoine Augustin Parmentier, after whom the hashes Parmentier is named. I had never heard of him before this, and his entry in Wikipedia is both interesting and amusing. Therefore, I will also need to apologize in advance if the following information is overly entertaining. Antoine Augustine Parmentier 12 August 1737 to 13 December 1813 was a French pharmacist and agronomist best remembered as a vocal promoter of the potato as a food source for humans in France and throughout Europe. His many other contributions to nutrition and health included establishing the first mandatory smallpox vaccination campaign under Napoleon beginning in 1805 when he was Inspector General of the Health Service, and pioneering the extraction of sugar from sugar beets. Parmentier also founded a school of bread making and studied methods of conserving food, including refrigeration. So that was the starting brief on Parmentier. And now we will go into the life and career. While serving as an army pharmacist for France in the Seven Years' War, he was captured by the Prussians, and in prison in Prussia was faced with eating potatoes, known to the French only as hog feed. The potato had been introduced from South America to Europe by the Spaniards at the beginning of the 16th century. It was introduced to the rest of Europe by 1640, but outside Spain and Ireland was usually used only for animal feed. King Frederick II of Prussia had required peasants to cultivate the plants under severe penalties and had provided them cuttings. In 1748, France had actually forbidden the cultivation of the potato on the grounds that it was thought to cause leprosy, among other things, and this law remained on the books in Parmentier's time until 1772. I just have to stop here for a moment and say I think it's pretty hilarious that the 
person who eventually brings about the popularity of potatoes in France became interested in them after being forced to eat them as a prisoner of war. And probably going into that experience thinking that it was torture because potatoes are just for farm animals at the time. From his return to Paris in 1763, he pursued his pioneering studies in nutritional chemistry. His prison experience came to mind in 1772 when he proposed, in a contest sponsored by Academy Besancoin, use of the potato as a source of nourishment for dysenteric patients. He won the prize on behalf of the potato in 1773. Due largely to Parmentier's efforts, the Paris Faculty of Medicine declared potatoes edible in 1772. Still, resistance continued, and Parmentier was prevented from using his test garden at the Invalides Hospital, where he was pharmacist, by the religious community that owned the land, whose complaints resulted in the suppression of Parmentier's post at the Invalides. So I just want to point out here that when you think about how long humanity has persevered and seemingly against all odds caused by struggles, natural and man-made, there have always been profoundly strange beliefs that had to be overcome with regard to the latter. This, I have to feel, gives some hope to our survival of modern-day struggles. To know that at one time a person of science was prevented from feeding potatoes to the infirmed on religious grounds. From here he moved on to baking, but couldn't resist the introduction of potato bread, and subsequently became the first army pharmacist appointed by Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, I must read the next two sections because their headings alone bring me joy. Potato Publicity Stunts Parmentier then began a series of publicity stunts for which he remains notable today. Hosting dinners at which potato dishes featured prominently, and guests included Benjamin Franklin and Antoine Lavoisier. He gave bouquets of potato blossoms to the king and queen, and surrounded his potato patch at Sablons with armed guards during the day to suggest valuable goods, withdrawing them at night so people could steal the potatoes. The same story exists in Germany about Frederick the Great. These 54 arpents of impoverished ground near Neuilly, west of Paris, had been allotted him by order of Louis XVI in 1787. That's all pretty priceless, including pretending that your potato garden is valuable goods. 
Now on to acceptance of the potato. In 1771, Parmentier won an essay contest in which all the judges voted the potato as the best substitute for ordinary flour. This was before a time when France needed a replacement for wheat, so Parmentier continued to face criticism and lack of acknowledgement for his work. The first step in the acceptance of the potato in French society was a year of bad harvests in 1785, when the scorned potatoes staved off famine in the north of France. In 1789, Parmentier published Treatise on the Culture and Use of the Potato, Sweet Potato, and Jerusalem Artichoke, quote, printed by order of the king, giving royal backing to potato eating, albeit on the eve of the French Revolution thus leaving it up to the Republicans to accept it. And in 1794, Madame Marajot published Le Cuisinaire Républicain, the Republican cook, the first potato cookbook promoting potatoes as food for the common people. Honestly, all of this sort of blows my mind that potatoes weren't accepted as food, let alone a popular food, until the last quarter century is very surprising. The acceptance of potatoes in France is more recent than the founding of the United States. Speaking of the United States and popular potatoes, I think we would be remiss in our unexpectedly thorough look at the humble potato, were we to eschew the French fried potato. Now, I will not go in super depth here. The wiki article alone is rather long, and could on its own be the subject of an entire segment of this podcast, a particular ponder. Were the French fried potato not so prohibitively exhilarating, in the fullness of its history and importance. The first note I found interesting was that shortly after the potato was finally accepted in France, quoting Wiki again, Thomas Jefferson had potatoes, quote, served in the French manner at a White House dinner in 1802. This made me think about how Parmentier had pushed the potato by serving it to Ben Franklin, and that caused me to imagine Franklin returning to the States and raving to Jefferson about French fries, like Jerry Horn raving to Ben Horn about butter and brie baguettes in Twin Peaks. Also very interesting is the question of the actual origin of the French fry as we know it. It is apparently rather hotly contested, its national heritage. More from Wikipedia. The French and Belgians have an ongoing dispute about where fries were invented, with both countries claiming ownership. From the Belgian standpoint, the popularity of the term French fries 
is explained as French gastronomic hegemony, into which the cuisine of Belgium was assimilated because of a lack of understanding, coupled with a shared language and geographic proximity of the countries. Fries may have been invented in Spain, the first European country in which the potato appeared from the New World colonies. Professor Leggins, curator of the Frit Museum in Bruges, Belgium, believes that St. Teresa of Avila of Spain cooked the first French fries, and refers also to the tradition of frying in Mediterranean cuisine as evidence. The Belgian journalist, Joe Girard, claimed that a 1781 family manuscript recounts that potatoes were deep-fried prior to 1680 in the Meuse Valley, in what was then the Spanish Netherlands, present-day Belgium. Quote, The inhabitants of Namur, Andine, and Dinant had the custom of fishing in the Meuse for small fish and frying, especially among the poor. But when the river was frozen and fishing became hazardous, they cut potatoes in the form of small fish and put them in a fryer like those here. Gerard has not produced the manuscript that supports this claim. In any case, it is unrelated to the later history of the French fry, as the potato did not arrive in the region until around 1735. Also, given 18th century economic conditions, it is absolutely unthinkable that a peasant could have dedicated large quantities of fat for cooking potatoes. At most, they were sautéed in a pan. Well, now that we are both thoroughly confused as to the origin of the French fry, and have some refreshing curiosity about the variety of post-potato European cooking, this would seem to me as a comfortable stopping point as regards our titillating tuber. Let us now shift gears for a moment to another question. Last time, during the scroll of benches on my Instagram feed, we discovered a photo by park underscore benches of a bench which, quote, takes into account the impact of the modern Western diet. That bench was located in Bendigo, and I told you that I would look into where in the world that is. Bendigo, it turns out, is in Victoria, Australia. It is about two hours inland, northwest on the M79, from Melbourne, in the far south of that country. The traditional owners of the area are the Jaja Warun people, and the region was something of a gold boomtown in the mid-19th century. Because this is a food episode of the podcast, and also because the bench which brought us here was designed to take into account the impact of the modern Western diet, I also looked up a popular food from the region. This food is not technically from Bendigo, but its creator was. This is the Chico Roll. 
The Chico Roll is an Australian savory snack invented by Frank McEnroe, inspired by the Chinese Spring Roll, and first sold in 1951 as the Chicken Roll, despite not actually containing chicken. The snack was designed to be easily eaten on the move without a plate or cutlery. Since 1995, Chico Rolls have been made by Simplot Australia. A Chico Rolls filling is primarily cabbage and barley, as well as carrot, green beans, beef, beef tallow, wheat cereal, celery, and onion. The filling is partially pulped and enclosed in a thick egg and flour pastry tube designed to survive handling at football matches. The roll is typically deep-fried in vegetable oil. At the peak of its popularity in the 1960s and 1970s, 40 million Chico rolls were sold annually in Australia. The product has been described as an Australian cultural icon. I love that this was called a chicken roll and did not have chicken in it. It also does sound suspiciously like a Chinese spring roll, as it says it was inspired by, but it sounds barely any different, except for maybe a couple of ingredients. I suppose we would have to talk to somebody from Bendigo or Melbourne to find out whether this flavor-wise is very similar to the egg roll or spring roll as we know it, at least here in the United States. Development The Chico Roll was developed by Frank McEnroe, a boilermaker from Bendigo, Victoria, who turned to catering at football matches and other outdoor events. In 1950, McEnroe saw a competitor selling Chinese chop suey rolls outside the Richmond Cricket Ground and decided to add a similar product to his own line. McEnroe felt that the Chinese rolls were too flimsy to be easily handled in an outdoor, informal setting, and hit upon the idea of a much larger and more robust roll that would provide a quick meal that was both reasonably substantial and easily handled. The result was the Chico Roll which debuted at the Wagga Wagga Agriculture Show in 1951. So there you have some description that clears up the difference between the Chinese-style egg or spring roll and what McEnroe invented here in Bendigo, Victoria. I would be very curious to know how different these are in real life. Because, to be fair, at least where I live in San Francisco, there are a lot of different 
varieties of fried food that come from Chinese restaurants. And we have a lot of different regional Chinese food here in San Francisco. In fact, I live in a neighborhood that has food from probably, I don't even know how many different parts of China. Around here, you don't really say so much that you want Chinese food. It's what kind of Chinese food do you want? So on that level, I would be curious, you know, even though I'm really into food, when I read the ingredients list for the Chico roll, I can't tell right off the like top of my head what I think that would taste like. I think in part because I'm getting thrown by the barley, um, and there's green beans, which I don't think is very common at all in an egg roll. And I'm also wondering how much larger it is. It says here that McEnroe wanted something that would be a reasonably substantial meal. So does that mean it approaches more like a burrito? I can't imagine it does, but let's say it's bigger than your average egg roll. Although, like I said, I'm not sure what that even is. Here in San Francisco, we have just about every kind of fried wrapper food, including the smaller versions that you'll find in Vietnamese food, and one of my personal favorites, the lumpia in Filipino food. Well, if you, dear listener, have been to Australia and the Melbourne area, and have had the opportunity to enjoy the Chico roll, which is not made of chicken, and has a questionable, somewhat disputed background of where it originated and really who's responsible. I would love to know what you can tell us about it. And in particular, does it taste good? Now for our final update, which I thought could segue nicely into our hopefully more botanically, if not culinarily astute, return to the roundup of vegetables I know. Once and for all, we shall lay bare the definitions and classifications, the distinctions and differences, if you will, between our agricultural adversaries, fruit, and vegetable. Because I do not want to adjudicate this matter for any longer than we have already dwelled, we shall rely on an explanation published by the Honorable Organization, which has made defining its business since 1828. Miriam Webster. What they have provided is a micro-article, which may be as recent as November 2017, from whence they did tweet on the subject matter of our earnest investigation. Fruit, it is entitled, versus vegetable. Eat, they have added, your vegetables. Wait, that's not a vegetable. And now the body. 
It's easy to go through life feeling like you know the difference between a fruit and a vegetable. But it's likely that at one time some truculent pill has tried to disabuse you of the idea that you know your produce. You know, such a person has said, a tomato isn't a vegetable, it's a fruit. And maybe even same thing with peppers and cucumbers. The so there expletive is understood, if not explicitly said. Sigh. Is the truculent pill right? Well, um, yes. As we discuss in the article on what's an herb and what's a spice, the language we commonly use for some common things sometimes contradicts the technical language used for those same things. And so it is, too, with fruits and vegetables. If you are playing the guessing game known, among other variations, as animal, vegetable, mineral, vegetable is roughly synonymous with plant, as that word is most technically defined, any of a kingdom, plantae, of multicellular, eukaryotic, mostly photosynthetic organisms, typically lacking locomotive movement, or obvious nervous or sensory organs, and possessing cellulose cell walls. This dictionary defines it thusly too. A vegetable is sometimes any kind of living thing that lacks both the ability to get around as well as the brain and sensory organs that we associate with animals. But in the grocery store, it's a different matter. The grocery store meaning of the word vegetable is the one herein defined as a usually herbaceous plant, such as the cabbage, bean, or potato, grown for an edible part that is usually eaten as part of a meal. Also, such an edible part. The word herbaceous here refers to the kind of stem vegetable plants have, one with little or no woody tissue, the kind that grows only for a single growing season. This meaning neatly distinguishes recognizable vegetables like broccoli and carrots and kale from the things that grow on trees, like apples and pears. At first glance, it might appear to also allow for the tomato of our truculent pilferin to be classified as a vegetable as well. But it does not, in fact, quite do that. Though a tomato plant is indeed herbaceous, its parts are not woody, and it grows for only one season. A vegetable is by our definition only the plant itself or the edible part of such a plant. Meanwhile, the thing a tomato plant produces isn't a part of the plant itself any more than the egg a chicken lays is part of the chicken 
or the apple is part of the tree on which it grows. And so it is here that we turn to the relevant definition of fruit. The usually edible reproductive body of a seed plant, especially one having a sweet pulp. The tomato plant is a seed plant. It bears seeds. And the tomato that grows from it is an edible reproductive body. The seeds within the tomato are the means by which the tomato plant reproduces. A tomato isn't sweet like an apple, but the definition doesn't require it to be in order to qualify as a fruit. I think I would like to interject here as well that while the average hothouse tomato that you might get at a large grocery store isn't exactly sweet. If you have the good fortune of getting some heirloom tomatoes from a farmer's market while tomatoes are in season over the summertime, then you know that while savory, and normally you would add salt, tomatoes can be extremely sweet, or at least very juicy and succulent. They're maybe not the sweet you think of when you think of other fruits, but they're juicy and not the kind of savory, at least that I think of when I think of other vegetables, when I think of things that tend more towards uh, an umami or earthy flavor. By these technical definitions, then, our truculent pill friend is correct. A tomato is a fruit, and so is a pepper, which we started the roundup of vegetables I know with, and so is a cucumber, and so are all the squashes, even zucchini. Anything that grows on a plant and is the means by which that plant gets its seeds out to the world is a fruit. Carrots and potatoes and parsnips and the like are, of course, still vegetables. They are the edible part of the plant, not its reproductive body. Now there you go, a zucchini or a squash, I think of those as particularly savory, um, including like an eggplant, which we've already discussed before, as being these very savory things. But also, it just doesn't seem right to me to talk about a salsa as being a fruit salad or a really hearty Italian sauce to be called a fruit sauce, even though it would have potentially tomatoes, zucchini, eggplant all mixed in there, and even bell pepper. Possibly the only non-fruit in an amazing spaghetti sauce might be the onion. Moving on. We will not, however, abandon you to the gloating of your truculent pill friend without some source of consolation. In closing, we offer instead some information you may use as your own ammunition of truculence. 
Strawberries are not technically berries, but bananas are. Brief explanation. The seeds, technically eschines, of a strawberry are embedded on its exterior, while a true berry has its seeds inside the pulpy flesh, which makes bananas berries. Same goes for cucumbers and zucchinis. So there. Now I must confess to some slight but further disappointment with this last morsel of information as regards the cucumber, which I also named prior to the eggplant in episode three of Ryan Rambles You to Rest as a vegetable. But I pledge and entreat you to join me that these feelings are my old feelings, the old me, and that the new me, in fact, the new us, we will proceed into the future concern-free. Although I shall endeavor toward accuracy, for the remainder of our journey I will proceed unconcerned, as I hope you will as well, dear listener. Before we move on, I would like to add that a great deal of the knowledge I am dispensing here into your restful mind is made possible by the hard work of the folks at wikipedia.org. If you believe you have benefited from this podcast, please consider a donation to them. Now that was a very long section of updates, and because it was so long we will have only one more segment to this episode, the continuation of the roundup of Vegetables I Know. Was there something in these updates that you thought were interesting? Let me know. At long last, we are returning to the roundup. So far, we have covered vegetables, and to be fair, some fruits. I know. To date, I have successfully named a handful of vegetables, and these are they. Onions, carrots, celery, and lettuce. For as much time as we have spent on the topic, you would imagine we could have more than four. But alas, four is fine, and we have been able to spend bonus time ruminating on future friends should I endeavor to name fruits that I know. In fact, I suspect with the wealth of information we have developed to date, we should have a field day with fruits. Now, where to begin? for this installment. The last proper vegetable in our list was lettuce. 
And at the time of talking about lettuce, I brought up some of the other leafy greens as in contest with lettuce for salad value, for presence in a salad. And also in a few cases, I think I, I also mentioned in a sandwich context, which is also very important. However, to be real about things, you can't cook lettuce. You don't really want to pickle it or fry it, saute it. Lettuce is best enjoyed raw, if not only enjoyed raw. If you know of a hot lettuce dish, you'll have to let me know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. And in the last Roundup segment that we did, I did mention that I like lettuce in a burrito, as that may be anathema to some. It's still not technically a cooked lettuce. So this is sort of the long way around of getting into some of the other leafy greens, or almost greens, if you will, and there are so many of them. I'll try to name as many as I can, and I'll try to move relatively quickly through them. I would first like to submit in this extended leafy category, cabbage. Now, there are multiple different kinds of cabbage, and I would probably fail to accurately enumerate the lot of them, but I just want to start with the broad concept of cabbage, this similar to lettuce but densely packed vegetable. It brings crunch. It brings sometimes bitterness. It is sometimes served fresh, but it is probably arguably best served in other ways, unlike lettuce. For starters, I am personally a fan of coleslaw. It is often in competition with potato salad, and we've already talked a bit about potatoes, but I tend to prefer coleslaw. However, it is a side dish, it's not a meal, and it's something that I think you have a taste for, and not just coleslaw in general, but specific coleslaws. There are many different preparations, and the distinctions, I think, are crucial. For some people, a creamy coleslaw is preferable. For others, a more bitey, vinegary coleslaw is preferred. 
Those are probably the main categories, but there might be something more sweet too. And personally, I lean in the creamy direction. I tend to be a pro-creamy person when it comes to my salad accoutrement. So I like the creamier mac salads. I like the creamier potato salads, egg salads, etc. But coleslaw I'm a fan of. I'm something of a salt fiend when it comes to specific dishes and coleslaw in particular I can't get enough on there. I like it. I like having a coarse salt on my coleslaw. It adds like a extra crunch to the already crunchy food. Now coleslaw is a garnish as well. It is at this point a traditional topping for the probably best chicken sandwiches that you'll find. Fried chicken sandwiches. Now, you can probably think of a chicken sandwich that doesn't have coleslaw, and if you can tell me about that, I would love to know. But definitely, probably the top two or three fried chicken sandwiches that I've had have had coleslaw. Another pretty big favorite of mine, and this is, you know, it's probably good that this is so deep into the episode because this is kind of a confession, but I'm an East Coast guy, and I'm from the Philadelphia area, and being a Northeast East Coaster, means that I've had in my time and have sought after some of the good and some of the best as far as the classic Reuben sandwich goes. But my personal confession is that I am a bigger fan of the cousin of the Reuben sandwich, often referred to as the Rachel and that is basically the Reuben that is served with coleslaw instead of sauerkraut and cold Swiss instead of melted. And so it's a combination of the warm, ideally freshly carved pastrami or corned beef and then, and then piled up with the cheese and the and the coleslaw and I love that sandwich even thinking about it right now is making me want one now if you are familiar with Salvadorian food then you have had the pupusa and the pupusa is, if you haven't had it, 
one of the best things that you can have off a griddle. If you are, if you are a savory person, it's almost like a. I don't want to say pancake, but it's similar to a pancake that's been stuffed with beans and cheese and whatever, depending on what you order. And it's it's fried on the on a griddle usually and it's pressed flat and the the best ones to me have hot cheese oozing out of them and getting fried on the range top before they're pulled off and they take an okay amount of technique i've tried making them and you can get in the zone especially with the flavors it's not necessarily challenging but nailing it is a bit of an art and when you have the opportunity to find a good Salvadorian place, treat yourself. So in any case, the traditional topping to a pupusa is curtido. And curtido is basically just coleslaw that's been fermented. It's been pickled probably overnight or quick pickled with a few extra ingredients, like uh, they're usually a bit heavy on oregano. And I can't get enough of that stuff. If I'm having a pupusa, I just need extra curtido. That's really the best stuff. That's where it's at. Of course, you can't fairly talk about cabbage without at least paying some lip service to kimchi. Kimchi is an, you know, essential staple to Korean food, and it's impossible to imagine the cuisine without it. Kimchi is just a great thing to begin with. It's spicy, crunchy, and it works as a as a side that you just, you know, add to something or eat between bites, the way you might have ginger in between bites of sushi. But it also works great to incorporate it into things. Like a kimchi fried rice can be absolutely amazing. And similar to coleslaw, kimchi can be a topping on a sandwich or part of a, a sandwich topping. I feel like I'm only going to be able to somewhat scratch the surface, just mildly scratch the surface of cabbage. I can't do it super good justice. Because obviously it goes further into even European cuisine. Sauerkraut is an essential part of German food, and I am a fan of sauerkraut, even though I might have sounded like not earlier. Sauerkraut is great. Another example of something that is can be incorporated in a lot of different places. The sauerkraut can go on the sandwich. It can go on the side of the plate. It can go into a stuffed food like a piroshki. 
and cabbage can find its way into a soup as well. Plenty of European, especially Eastern European foods, use a decent amount of cabbage. I'm not sure whether it fits right into the cabbage realm, but I think they may be related. And I want to make sure that I don't forget to mention Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts aren't super versatile, but they are really good. I remember growing up, I don't think I ever really ate them, but their reputation preceded them. For years and years, I existed under the sort of delusion that I didn't like Brussels sprouts, and I'm not even sure I knew what they look like. Fast forward many, many years later, and probably around the time that they became popular again in modern American cuisine, that I was either first introduced or reintroduced to Brussels sprouts, and now, of course, I love them. They're super great and easy to prepare in that you can just buy a bunch of them at the farmer's market or at the grocery store, and then all you really need is oil, salt, and pepper, and a roasting pan, and you're on your way. If you feel like going a little bit more of a labor-intensive route, you can make Brussels sprouts chips. But really, the Brussels sprout on its own, just roasted, is too good. Like I said, I, I don't think it's especially versatile, so I can't think of many other things to do with it. And for that reason, I wanted to make sure that I caught it in the same breath as cabbage. A part of me has been trying to progress through this roundup of vegetables I know by trying to be somewhat orderly and uh, definitive in listing and therefore listing essentials, trying to get the most important things first. And that's why I opened with onion. Like, I, th I think that onions are pretty much the most essential vegetable out there. But we were talking about cabbage and pickled things. We talked about curtido, and we talked about kimchi, which is fermented. And with pickling in my mind, I wanted to make sure to mention daikon because I, I had some pickled daikon recently and pickled daikon has to be one of the best pickled vegetables you can have. 
Now you'll often see it as Oshinko on a sushi menu, and that's definitely one of my favorites. An Oshinko roll that's just sushi rice and a seaweed wrapper and pickled daikon? Forget about it. I think I would take that most of the time over going to the ginger for the palate cleanser. The pickled daikon is just so bright and refreshing. Now, I think that's where I know it best from. But I recently discovered Taiwanese food, and specifically Taiwanese, a traditional Taiwanese street food. I'm probably going to mangle the pronunciation, but it's called Lu Ro Fan. And it's a uh, pork belly over rice is the short version. And it's the, the, the pork belly is, you know, slow cooked overnight. The sauce that it's in is super rich. And it's served with the pickled daikon on the side. If I don't know if that's a traditional garnish, but I've had it twice from two different places that way. And you can also get it with, uh, you'll want an egg. Sometimes you get a sushi egg. And that dish itself is amazing. I, I happen to live near a Taiwanese place that opened not long ago. It's just on the same street as where I live. And then I, I recently also, during the pandemic, discovered that someone was running a pop-up that cooked that dish specifically in my neighborhood. And if you get on a mailing list, you'll know when she's cooking it. And her thing for making it was, as I understand it, I'm, I'm trying to remember because I think I just read an article about it, but she was interviewed at one point and basically said she couldn't find a great version of it in the United States and was a bit homesick. So she started making it. And uh, it's great. In any case, that took us to the Oshinko, to the pickled daikon. And I think Oshinko might just be uh, mean pickled vegetable, so maybe it's just traditionally daikon. If you are more familiar with Japanese cuisine than I am, then uh, you can let me know. I feel like I've taken a little bit of a detour here into some more Asian-specific vegetables that are most common there. I feel like, therefore, I don't want to forget to mention bok choy. I'm not a very big fan of bok choy. I can take it or leave it. Sometimes I wonder why. Every once in a while I, I take a bite and I think that's that's why you eat this. And then other times I feel like this is this is just doesn't need to be here. It's 
maybe a little too slimy or overcooked. I'm not sure if it's also a relative of cabbage, but it's, you know, similar. It can be super good, but I don't seek it out. Most often it's in a dish I'm eating, and when, I, when, it's, when it's super good, it surprises me, and I'm excited that it's there. And other times I am glad that it's not heavily featured. I think if I have sort of a main issue with bok choy is that I feel like it doesn't fit quite right into most situations. The leaves or pieces, whatever they are, um, you know, they're often whole pieces. They're, it's like taking off celery stalks and, and thinking that a, an entire celery stalk is going to fit well into a dish, and of course it wouldn't. And, it, and I feel like bok choy kind of works that way too, in that it's either a, a whole big clump of it or it's a large leaf of it. It's very imposing, and therefore I think tends to be kind of in the way. Like anything else, of course, it can be served well, and I feel like it might be best when it's featured, but you don't sneak it in. It's the same problem with broccoli, which we'll get to. Maybe you have a different perspective on bok choy. Let me know. We have talked so far about a few items that are fairly staples or beg attention when they're involved, which is certainly true of Brussels sprouts and uh, bok choy. And I think that I have to make sure that before we get through this saga, of rounding up vegetables I know, that I mention asparagus. It's another one that is super specific, that doesn't have a lot of versatility. You don't hide asparagus in a dish. Asparagus is often a side there is, of course, asparagus, a cream of asparagus soup. But asparagus is more often than not grilled or braised or um, cooked in some way and put on the side almost in its whole form. I think you can also bread it and deep fry it, although I think you can bread and deep fry just about anything. Asparagus, I think, is also one that's somewhat contentious for folks that, you know, don't necessarily seek it out. But just like Brussels sprouts, it's another one where if you have good asparagus, salt, pepper, oil, roasting pan, and you're good. I find that sometimes 
having a kind of overload experience puts you in the zone for liking something. I went to an amazing Thai restaurant in Thailand that was about emphasizing the flavors of the culture, and it was also one of the few restaurants that was considered fine dining that actually served Thai food in Bangkok. And there I had a, in one course there was, I guess it would be an amuse-bouche, it was a small bite of food that was just a fish sauce bomb. And until that bite, which basically blew the back of my head off with fish sauce, I never really liked this stuff. And if I knew that it was in a dish for certain, I usually wouldn't order it, although I know it's ooh, just about everywhere. But it that, that, that intensity brought me in. And this is a bit of a digression, but the reason I'm bringing it up is that I remember that one day, well over 10 years ago, I was meeting my partner for lunch and we went to some food trucks. And it was when, even when food trucks were still kind of coming into their own, and we went, we were downtown in San Francisco, and there was a food truck area. And one of the food trucks was from a previous Top Chef contestant. And of course, that, you know, that sort of celebrity always makes me want to try something. And he had on his menu a baby asparagus sandwich and it was like a hot sandwich and it was thick with asparagus like it was like a hamburger like a hearty hamburger of asparagus but it was baby asparagus so it held together kind of better to this day i'm actually still kind of more of a fan of baby asparagus and I, I like the, the smaller version of that. Similar to how, like, uh, I kind of prefer broccolini to broccoli. But we'll get to that. Broccoli may well be the elephant in the room. And for that reason, I'd like to come back to thinking about leafy greens. You know, we, we dove into cabbage and it's just impossible to go through a roundup of vegetables without covering so many different leafy greens. And as I said, so many are as distinct from lettuce in that they have a value as cooked. And so therefore, it is absolutely vital to mention spinach. I won't dwell for too long on spinach, except to say that it appears in a lot of different cuisines. 
Americans mainly know it as creamed spinach or getting frozen bricks of it. I remember that as a kid and also as a college student. And those things are pretty good, just for the record. You know, if you're gonna try and just throw a quick meal together, having some frozen veg in your freezer, it's not better than having fresh produce, but if you need to throw something together in a pinch and you want to get some extra flavor and some extra nutrition, then sometimes that's where it comes from. And if I was going to say that there would be like a trifecta of frozen veg to have in your freezer, then it might be peas, corn, and spinach. And I say this without wanting to get too deep in the weeds on what the difference is between a fruit and a vegetable, because I know that peas and corn get us into a little bit of weird territory. But spinach is fair game, and frozen spinach isn't the end of the world. Or maybe the end of the world is frozen spinach, and we just haven't truly seen it yet. In any case, spinach is a relatively essential vegetable. When I have done, like, salad bars, I used to go to a place for salad outside of work probably once a week. And there was a salad bar, and I would mostly go with a spring greens mix, but I always put a bed of spinach down. I felt like that was somehow healthier. It probably is a little bit. But, you know, the rest of the stuff that I was putting on that salad probably counteracted that too. I mean, to be fair, the, the beans were good that I would put in there, and some fresh bell pepper, and I like putting beets on a salad, but I also like putting on croutons, cheese, bacon bits, that good stuff. But you'd be sure to find spinach in the bottom of one of my salads. And of course it's important to Indian food. Palak paneer, or sag paneer, spinach and cheese. That dish is one of the most fantastic. We don't order it very often, but it's possible that a version of it is the best Indian food I've had. I just don't chase it very much. We were staying in Hoi An, Vietnam, and there was an Indian restaurant I think in, you know, the Lonely Planet guidebook that was well-rated. And at that time in my traveling, I had this kind of dumb notion in my mind that if you went somewhere exotic and saw food from another country there, then maybe it was really good because that person had traveled all over the world to bring that cuisine there. That might be 
partially a bias that was instilled in me by living in San Francisco, but I think it was mainly just ignorance. I think I just thought that if you were going to pull up stakes and move somewhere like that, that you had to be taking passion with you. In any case, this Indian restaurant in Hoi An turned out to be really good. And the food was super spicy. And it was definitely before I became afflicted in such a way that I can't eat spice, which is kind of my situation now. And the main dish that I can remember eating there was the sag paneer. We even had leftovers and took it back to the room that we were staying in nearby. And I got some maybe form of food poisoning. I'm not sure if it was the spice that took me out, and in hindsight it might have been the spice that took me out. But... I was laid out the next day, and my partner had to go and enjoy the morning without me while I laid in bed. And when she got home, she asked if I was hungry, and I said, yeah. And she asked me what I wanted, and I said, well, I know we have some leftovers of that Indian food. And I was definitely prohibited from exploring that desire. I like to say I was like Homer Simpson in the hoagie. Like I knew it was bad for me, but I just wanted to have more of it. But as a result, I always have a place in my heart for spinach. The chosen strengthening food of Popeye the Sailor. I love arugula. When I was a kid, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a funny word. And when I heard it in like movies and TV, I just thought it was silly. And even as an adult, I didn't think much about it. But it's a peppery green. It's a it's a leafy green that brings its own pepper to the party and it's kind of amazing for that. It is especially good to sneak into a sandwich or a salad um, as a kind of blend to bring that extra peppery flavor, that kind of spiciness. But I will also say that like lettuce, it, it shouldn't be cooked. It's a fresh leaf, for sure. But the best pizza, maybe the best two pizzas, as far as I'm concerned, in San Francisco, and I would even say among my top five in the world, are both made with arugula. One is from a tiny hole-in-the-wall place called Pizzetta. And they make a mascarpone and arugula pizza that is 
absolutely killer. They make a lot of pizzas, and they're a pizza place, obviously. They make a lot of very fancy artisanal pizzas, but not over fancy, like simple ingredients, good flavors. And their mascarpone and arugula pizza is by far the best on the menu. And it's not for the lack of being amazing by the other pizzas, it's just that that one is so good. But it still took us a couple of tries to figure out that we really had to just order two versions of that pie. For as good as everything sounds on that menu, the problem we always ran into was that we would be fighting over that mascarpone and arugula pie. And there's one other one that I really like in San Francisco. It's from Casey's Pizza. Now, Casey's was for a long time a food truck, and then they got a brick and mortar down in Dog Patch, and they make delicious pizzas too. They're the closest that I've had in San Francisco or on the West Coast to the Grimaldi's pizza in Dumbo. Or I guess technically it would be the Juliana's pizza in Dumbo. And, you know, that's a saga maybe we can talk about another time. But Casey's Pizza in San Francisco is amazing. And they do a super solid pepperoni pizza. And as a fan of their food truck, for a long time I would go and ask if they would put the arugula on the pepperoni pizza because they also had an arugula pizza and they did it and I I just couldn't get enough of it for a while their their truck was parked in such a spot near the office where I worked that I would sometimes pass it on the way to work and then I'd have to stop and get a slice or else it means that I knew I had to get back to their truck before 2.30. I guess when you get down to it, I'm basically making a call for arugula as essentially a pizza topping, and that's fairly true. I, I definitely welcome it in a sandwich. I recently had a breakfast sandwich that was a fluffy sort of brioche bun with avocado, arugula, and egg, and a spicy aioli in it, and that was, oh, and, and, uh, sautéed zucchini, and that was a pretty solid breakfast sandwich, I have to admit. So, besides amazing pizzas and breakfast sandwiches, what dishes do you like to find arugula in? Before we wrap up this roundup of vegetables I know, I think that I have to stop ignoring the vegetable in the room. Broccoli. Now, I don't hate broccoli. 
and I would say that it's probably more versatile in its way than some of the other vegetables listed so far. But let's be honest, broccoli is an awkward vegetable. It kind of asserts its dominance. Just like bok choy, you can't really have it be subtle in a dish. And at least in America, broccoli is way overused in American Chinese cooking. There are lots of hearty greens out there that could fill in, but broccoli is everywhere. Now, part of my attitude here might just be that when my partner and I get Chinese takeout, I'm often left with the lion's share of eating the broccoli, because I don't want it to go to waste. And it's quite frankly not my favorite thing. Nor is it hers. Nor should it be anyone's. I wonder what it would be were there a case for broccoli. There's a broccoli cheese soup that I think more Americans are familiar with. That's fine, I suppose. Broccoli is often a side dish in restaurants that are uncreative about side dishes. You'll find it steamed with carrots and cauliflower at a diner. So what's good about it then? Where do you like to have broccoli? I mentioned the salads from the salad bars that I would get once a week from work before the pandemic started. And I would sometimes put broccoli in those salads just because I felt like I needed a hearty green in there for the sake of nutrition. And perhaps that's the case for a raw broccoli, which would be what it was in the salad. But its pervasiveness in other places I still find somewhat perplexing. And I don't like it. It's not even as good as cauliflower, which you can deep fry with breading and make a great alternative buffalo wing. But I suppose we'll get to cauliflower another time too. If there's anything that might save broccoli for me, it might be broccolini. Broccolini is similar, it has florets, but it has a longer stalk, and the florets are smaller and less intrusive and also less dense. It's not like the cauliflower denseness that broccoli has. I really like to serve broccolini alongside a pasta and a salad as the hearty green, and it just needs a little bit of a braise or a saute or even just a grilling, if you like, a, a nice dry grilled and well-seasoned broccolini is quite amazing. But broccolini isn't broccoli. 
I can maybe look it up for a future update, but if I remember correctly, broccolini was actually a relatively recent food invention. It's the result of food science, of breeding, that is, I think, as recent a creation as within the last 30 years. I, I, I thought it was a vegetable, broccolini, it sounds like it's Italian. I thought it was a common Italian vegetable that only recently made its way to popularity in the United States, but although its origin might be Italian, it's not a classic ingredient. It's actually recent food. In any case, I think it's a fair sort of addendum to this broccoli conversation that I point out that broccolini, as a relative, is somehow just so much better to me. What are your feelings on broccoli and broccolini? Let me know. I feel like we've done a good turn on this roundup of vegetables I know. If accuracy should hold up, and I do not plan to fact-check myself moving forward, we have done so well as to triple our vegetable count in today's episode. I hope that you, dear listener, feel as accomplished as myself at this possible fact. I feel somewhat rejuvenated about this pursuit, and I hope we can make a solid press in the near future to round out the vegetables I know. How do you feel about the vegetables on this segment? Let me know. I think we'll leave it here for this episode. I hope you have been adequately rambled to rest and are not hearing what I am saying right now. However, if by some unfortunate circumstance you are conscious still, I will leave you with these parting words. Nest. self-righteous ceaseless flashy lie determined Pancake Familiar Caring Fixed And Preserve Thank you again. I am your host, Ryan. Music has been by Disparition. And I'll join you again soon.